Today, out of these uh, two verses, really a verse and a half, we're going to talk about the gospel. And I think the thing that Paul says to us in this verse and a half is that the gospel is unbreakable and that it's universal. I've been saying to you the past couple of weeks that this is Paul's only letter in which he ends with a doxology, or to put it in our current terms, a, a worshipful, praise-filled message for the church. So this is the only epistle, this is the only letter of Paul that he ends with this kind of praise. Let's read the verses together and then we'll dig down in and focus on the center of this text. Paul says, Now to him, this is speaking of God the Father, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. We believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And Paul ends his most important letter, if we can say that, by putting in front of us these two twin compatible truths. That God is worthy of all praise from all of His creation. But as we rest in Him, the One who has given us His Son, the One who has showered us with His love, we find our rest, our joy, our satisfaction in Him. And so Paul ends this letter in which he declares Not only the gospel itself, but the implications of a gospel-centered life. By saying, God has given us the gospel for his own glory. Now at first, that doesn't strike us quite naturally. It seems somewhat self-serving. It seems like God might be this sort of uh, bothered high school girlfriend out there whose, whose boyfriend dumps her and all, he, all she wants is for him to come back to her and, and until he does come back to her, all she does is fret over him, wanting him to make much of her. I think sometimes when you first hear that God has made the world for his glory and he gave us the good news for his glory, that's the notion that first pops into our head. That God's some, some jealous tyrant out there and unless he gets the praise of his people, that he's somehow not complete. That is not what we're saying. God is full of glory and is fully self-satisfied whether you or I worship him or not. Likewise, it is not jealous tyranny for God to want us to love him. For if God did not want us to love him, he would cease to be God because he would cease to desire the highest good, which is himself. So that is a bit circular, but it is the greatest reality in all the world. So God is not some petty tyrant up in the heavens begging for us to love him. God is the perfect being who is satisfied in himself, but wants us to be satisfied in him as well, which makes him perfect because he desires the highest good, but also makes him so kind because he has freed us and opened the way where we may desire the highest good. So Paul ends this letter by saying, 
all of the things that I have said are for God's glory. But I want you, Paul is saying, I want you, Roman church, and I say to you, I want you, this church, to understand that that is the path of joy, to know this God and to want to worship him. So yes, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think that's what Paul's saying in these final verses. So our goal today is to talk about the gospel, the fact that it is unbreakable, and the fact that it is universal. And I want all of us to walk away with two basic notions today. The first being that we should rest in the gospel. If it's unbreakable, we can rest in it. And if it's universal, we should join God in his redemptive mission. So two thoughts today. I want us to be encouraged to rest in the gospel. And I want us to be challenged to join our universally loving God in his redemptive mission. It's interesting if you think about it. Paul was a peerless rabbi. There was no one else in all of Israel that was quite as sharp as him as best we can tell. He the scriptures from his youth and was incredibly well versed in them. But he had missed the point largely. He had blind eyes. And it was not until the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Messiah, who had died for the world, met Paul on the road to Damascus and sovereignly opened his eyes and caused him to see that he understood all that he had studied. And it is no irony that Jesus made him blind for a time. He overcame him with the light. Jesus was the light of the world. He overcame Paul with the light. And it wasn't until Paul came into Damascus and met with Ananias and heard the gospel even more clearly that the scales fell from his eyes. And not only quite literally could he biologically see with these organs called eyes, but for the first time in his entire life, he could see with the eyes of his heart. And from that point on, Paul meditated on the scriptures to the point that he can say to us what we've already read together today. That this God had from before the foundation of the earth intended to rescue humanity. And throughout his special revelation, which we call the Bible, he had been unfolding this plan. And Paul, who had studied this plan for decades, had missed it. But Jesus showed up and said, you're mine, and let me show you my plan. And then for the rest of his life, Paul made much of Jesus. The one whom he formerly persecuted, the one he hated, he now preached. I think we have to park there for a minute and understand the import of that. He was the chief persecutor of the church, but he became the chief preacher of the Messiah. And this demonstrates to us the amazing power of God, and it is why Paul never got over it, and it's why he spent his life and all of his resources and all of his strength for all of his days to proclaim it. 
So he made much of God. God. God deserved the glory. But he wanted these Roman Christians to make much of God, to enjoy God's glory, and to rest in his good news. How did Paul think these thoughts would strengthen the Christians? Notice back in verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Well, by what means will they be strengthened? His gospel, the gospel he preached, which was about Jesus Christ, and which was now being progressively unfolded throughout time, and had now come in its full unfolding through the preaching of the gospel. That's how God, the glorious one, would strengthen these Christians. So, as we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, it is foolish of us to think that we can find a better way. And that the gospel, which is so foundational for our conversion, passing from death to life, passing from rebellion to worship, the gospel, which is so necessary for initial salvation, is just as necessary for continuing salvation. That is to say, Jesus has saved us through the gospel, but he continues to save us through the gospel. So how will an unbreakable gospel strengthen you today? Well, the reality is, one way or another, even if we don't like to admit it, we all want to be loved. Now, some of you try to act very stoically, and you you like to be sort of isolated. I I like that from time to time, too. I I like my alone time. I think I could probably live in a cabin in Montana for a couple months a year and be totally content. But it really comes down to it, I need to be surrounded with people who love me. And I need to know that they love me. I, I don't want to guess. I tend to be an anxious person. I tend to, to think the worst when bad things happen and wonder if my relationships will crumble. Why is that? Why is it that whenever you have a dispute with your spouse, that your mind goes in crazy ways? This is true, right? So you can have, you can have a fight with a person that you know loves you and you know you love them, but you can have really weird thoughts in the midst of a fight. Like, what will happen? Does this person not love me anymore? Is that why he was mean to me? Is, is this why she's being cold to me because, because our marriage is crumbling? I mean, it's amazing how, how one dispute, even in the midst of a really good relationship, can turn a relationship and make it very brittle. Your friendships are like this. You ever wonder sometimes if your friends are really for you? If they'll stick with you if you fail them? If you go through hard times together, if they'll be there on the other side? So how does an unbreakable gospel strengthen you? Well, if the chief end of man is to glorify God, how are you going to do that if you don't know that that God loves you? If if he's this envious taskmaster out there somewhere, that there's no way you can satisfy because he has perfect standards, how can you possibly continue on the path of worship if you're worried about whether or not he loves you? But if it's true what Paul says in this text, that God's love is unbreakable. In fact, we've already learned that your name was written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He set his love on you specially. If that's true, you can be strengthened in your sojourn. 
How does a universal gospel, the fact that the gospel is universal in its scope and in God's eternal power, how does that strengthen you? Because you know that the one who has commanded the nations to come to him to bring about the obedience of faith, and nobody comes to God of their own accord. We've already studied that in Romans very clearly. Everyone's running away from God. No one's coming to him of their own accord. How does that strengthen you? This morning as we were driving to our service, we were driving out of our neighborhood, and people are out starting their day and you know, mowing or doing gardening or whatever they're doing, and there's cars in the parking lot and on the driveways of the, of the houses, and it's clear that most people are home. And so my six-year-old said to me, Dad, when are they going to go to church? Like, like maybe they go at noon or two or whatever, and that probably seems better to him because it's a little bit later. And, and I said to him, I said, buddy, most of them are not going to go to church because most of them don't love God. And that blew his mind, which, you know, we think about this stuff all the time, but, but my little six-year-old, he's still processing this stuff. And so I turned around to him in the back seat, and I said, the only reason we're going to worship God is because he set his affections on you. I said, do you realize, Sam, that God loved you before he ever made the world? And like, his, his little brain was blown at that point. But God's universal power that he has set his affections on this little boy, on we, his people, and then it came about by his own command that, that led to our obedience of faith. That should strengthen us because we realize we didn't come of our own accord in the first place. It was of God's will. So we will unpack these thoughts today, and my hope is that we will be strengthened and that we will be encouraged. So, because of God's gracious plan, we may rest in his unbreakable love. Because of God's gracious plan, we may rest in his unbreakable love. So again, Paul's saying here, I want you to be strengthened, but again, by what means? Through the gospel. And what's the content of the gospel? It's the preaching of Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, resurrected. How did this gospel come about? Well, it was according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. For a while it was contained and, and shrouded. It doesn't mean that it was mystery in the sense that no one could figure it out because it was a bunch of riddles, but that it wasn't fully clear. It, it was somewhat shadowy. If you've ever taken a hike in the early dawn of a day or in the, the early dusk of the evening, it's amazing how things look so different at those times of day. Because the shadows are, are coming over the trail. And maybe if you're in a forest, you can, you can see dimly the moonlight through the trees a little bit before you. But if you hike that same trail in the light of day, it looks much different. That's what a mystery is like in the Bible. You can see your way forward, but it's, it's a bit shrouded in shadows. And this mystery had been kept secret or shrouded for a long, long time. But eventually, as we see in verse 26, had been progressively disclosed through the prophetic writings. What are those prophetic writings? Well, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Now again, remember, Paul himself, he had a shrouded mind, fully shrouded. But eventually, the things that he had for so long studied became clear to him. Jesus, after his resurrection, meets with a couple of disciples on the road to a little town called Emmaus. And he says this to them. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What kind of conversation must that have been like? Earlier he had told people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Peter says in his first epistle in chapter 1, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Jesus and Paul and Peter say to us that the prophets disclosed this message progressively over time. Let's look at some of the highlights. In Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the first sin, God shows up and curses the serpent and promises salvation. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when was the gospel about Jesus Christ first disclosed? Though still shrouded, it was disclosed immediately in the Bible. Later on in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob on his deathbed says to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're promised a substitutionary redeemer. In Genesis chapter 49, hundreds if not thousands of years later, we find that this man named Judah will have one who will come through his line and he will be a king. What will he be like and through whom will he come? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David the king, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He promises that the Messiah will come through the Davidic line. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, we find a prophecy of the suffering servant who will come. This is a Psalm of David. In verse 1, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. In verse 17, I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we could go on. And David speaks not only of his own personal immediate experience, but speaks beyond this to the one who will come from his line, his son, who will be the Messiah, who will be the king of Judah, who will be the substitutionary sacrifice, who will crush the head of the serpent. So progressively over time, Things are said about Jesus to reveal that he is coming. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 
In Isaiah 9, verse 2, the prophet says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The gracious God of eternity who showed up in the garden and promised redemption, this zealous God who loved his people, who wanted his glory to be enjoyed, the zeal of this God was caring for the promise of the Messiah. Look with me, if you don't mind, in one last passage in Isaiah chapter 53. So once again, we are hitting some of the highlights of the disclosure of this shrouded message, this mystery of the gospel. You're familiar with this passage. In Isaiah 53, the prophet once again says, Who has believed what they heard from us? Verse 1, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why does Paul say what he says in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26? Because the message of Jesus Christ though at one time shrouded, had been progressively disclosed through the Old Testament so that people like Paul could have their eyes open and trust him. I think sometimes we, we lose focus on what it was the old, the old church of the first century when Paul was ministering, what it was they were hearing. So when the early church gathered together, what Bible were they hearing? They were hearing the Old Testament. And seemingly, the apostles, including Paul, had no problem preaching about Jesus Christ because he was everywhere. And all we've done is hit the highlights. I wonder sometime whenever we are with Jesus in eternity, if we will get a chance to hear from him all the passage which formerly we missed him in as he discloses them to us. So when it's all said and done, as we look at passages like Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53, what are we to learn from all of this? Well, John Calvin said a long, long time ago, I missed it, let me go back. The revelation of Christ for man's salvation is the purpose of Scripture. We must not interpret Scripture as having any other purpose than of revealing Christ for our salvation. From beginning to end, the Bible is about the revelation of Jesus Christ who will redeem his people from sin. That's it. And though the Bible is complex and though it's long, it has one central message, and that is that Jesus Christ has come to rescue sinners. And Paul was overcome by that. And so he wanted the church to be strengthened with this idea that God, from before the foundation of the world, had planned to save them, had unfolded his plan, and no one could stop it. 
and progressively over time had revealed it and brought it to pass. And this should strengthen these people because they know that their salvation had been planned and executed by God. You should be encouraged by this unbreakable love today. A love which, which cannot go away. A love which, which says to you, you are, you are special because I, I have set my affections upon you. I recently had the chance to go down and visit my grandmother, uh, my father's mother. She's 92. My other grandmother is 99, so we've got some old genes in our family. We'll see how long I make it. But, but my, my grandmother, who's 92, was very close to growing up. She had a farm along with my grandfather down in Kentucky, and we would spend weeks at a time down there in the summer and basically just be little rednecks, which was really, really fun. Um, so uh, I have amazing memories with her. And now she lives in an assisted living facility now. My grandfather died uh, 17 years ago now. And so she's pretty old and feeble now and, and can't really take care of herself. My aunt, who's been taking care of her, her husband just died, and so she's going to move to Florida to be near one of my cousins, and she's going to take my grandmother down there. So my grandmother, 92, is moving from the country in Kentucky down to the panhandle of Florida. I said to Grandma, Grandma, you get to go to the beach now. And her response was, I've seen the beach. She, she doesn't care about these things. She, you know, for her, she's just going to be in another assisted living facility. So we, we got to go down and see her, my oldest brother and I, and, and we have, the two of us have been particularly close to her. And when we were saying goodbye, finally, she started crying. And she knows that, that the chances of us seeing her again are somewhat slim. And so it was a sad moment because she was so special to us. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. We were able to, after we left her, to go visit their old home place where they grew up. And there's generations of my family buried in these cemeteries right around the, the home place. So my grandparents literally were, were born in this little community, raised their kids there, die there, and will be buried there. After my grandmother dies, she'll be brought back to this little cemetery to rest next to my grandfather. And so there's, there's this long history of hundreds of years of my family being in this area. I, I can't put up in front of you on the screen because it's so bright in here, but we took some pictures of, of some old gravestones. Um, my great-great-great-great-grandmother on her side, so it would have been her great-great-grandmother, financed the building of this little Methodist church so that her son, my grandmother's great-grandfather, you following me so far, could come once a, once a month, because that's what these circuit-riding Methodist preachers did, he would come to this little community called Peloton and, and preach the gospel. And so my great-great-great-great-grandmother is buried in the cemetery where my grandmother will eventually be buried. And she financed the building of the church where my grandfather was converted and my father was converted on the same night. I've told some of you this story before. I think my dad was around nine. My grandpa would have been in his late 30s or early 40s. Um, he, was, he was not a mean man, but he was kind of rough. And my grandmother had grown up in this Christian family. She had this Christian heritage from the circuit rider preacher and his mother. And my grandmother eventually had, had enough of my, father's life, of my grandfather's lifestyle and confronted him. That very same day, he reached out to the Methodist preacher who was there for a revival. That night before the service ever began, he went down front. He was converted, and it was real. Like 20 other men in the community were converted that same day, and the community was never the same. My father and my brothers and a bunch of my cousins are now in vocational ministry, which doesn't make us special. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm just saying my simple grandmother sitting in this, in this chair in this little community in Kentucky, which none of you will ever visit, has had a rich life. No one will ever know her name. If, her name is Dora. 
if you're looking for a really great name, Dora is great, right? You can be like a little Hispanic girl who has a map, who has a monkey, or you can be an old country lady in Kentucky. But, but my grandmother, no one will ever meet her. No one, no one will ever think she's special. But I was able to kneel down by her chair while she was weeping the other day, and I was weeping. And I said to her, Grandma, you're the matriarch of faith in this family. I mean, quite literally, she's the matriarch. But, but you're the matriarch of faith, out of which we've all come to faith. And as I look back at the history of my family, and I see these old gravestones, and I think about my grandmother's influence, my, my God's unbreakable love goes back generations. Not because we're special, but simply because he's amazing in his grace. And as I look at my family's history, I realize his love is unbreakable, and I rest in that. But it goes way back further than that. That God has been intending from before he ever made the world to rescue his people from their sin. And we can rest in that kind of love. The second thing I want us to see today is that because of God's sovereign power, we may join him in his mission of redemption. So the first part of today, verses 25 and the first part of verse 26. Because of God's gracious plan, we may rest in his unbreakable love. But the second thing today in the second part of verse 26 is that because of God's sovereign power, we may join him in his mission of redemption. So notice this preaching, which came through the medium of the prophetic writings, the Old Testament, has now been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. So it wasn't just this general message that went out and and hopefully it would stick on the wall of people's proverbial hearts. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel is not something you just broadcast and hope that somebody believes it. The gospel is something which we proclaim knowing that God will use it to bring people to faith. That's how it works. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 16 verse 26. The gospel is now going out to all the nations. We shouldn't be surprised by this because in Genesis chapter 12, when God chose Abraham for himself, he says, I will make of you a great nation. You who just former or just prior to this was, was a pagan worshiper. That's who you were, Abraham. Now I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But it's not just going to be for his own physical offspring. Notice this. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's intention throughout the Old Testament was to make for himself a people through which the Messiah would come. But it wouldn't just be for the Messiah's genealogical people. It would be for all peoples. In Psalm 47, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. God is the God of all nations and cares about all nations. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 7 The prophet says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, speaking about Jesus who will come and serve people. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Later on in Isaiah 49, verses we read earlier today. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, 
the same servant Jesus who will come, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That would be, that would be a too light a thing to only send you to them. I'm going to do more than that. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 1. We saw this at the very beginning of our study in Romans. Paul opens up his letter by saying this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Sounds very similar to our verses today. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul ends his letter the same way he opens it. And turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 21. So from the beginning, God's intention has been to spread his grace upon all the nations. He promised it to Abraham and to Israel Jesus commanded us to go proclaim it. Guys like Paul did that. But how will it all wrap up? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 20, or chapter 21, verse 22, John the apostle says, And I saw no temple in the city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And in chapter 22, verse 1, John goes on to say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What is God doing right now? Where do we find ourselves in redemptive history? We ourselves are recipients of this universal grace. And by universal, I do not mean that every person will believe. By universal, I mean that it is open to all. And so, because of God's sovereign power, we may join him, and I think we could say we must join him in his mission of redemption. But we can be encouraged to join him because we're not just speaking an empty message that might have an effect. We are preaching a message that definitely will have an effect. I think in some ways, though certainly imperfectly, we can illustrate this by thinking about the Statue of Liberty. So in, in New York Harbor, you have this you know, huge green statue given to us by France. And to this statue, the huddled masses came from their various ethnicities. 
As people gathered at Ellis Island to sign their names in the books and to become U.S. citizens eventually, the ethnicities were brought together in this grand melting pot. And while certainly it was not primarily spiritual in nature, it does demonstrate to us how the nations come together under the the idea of freedom and liberty. But of course, way, way more. Jesus Christ is the one who stands over us and says to us, Bring me your tired and your weary and the huddled masses of all ethnicities and come to me, for I am the Savior of all the nations. This means that we should have love for all peoples everywhere, despite skin color and socioeconomic status and cultural idiosyncrasies. Ethnic prejudices have no place in God's kingdom, much the opposite. We should have a love for every ethnicity that there is so that the gospel can get to them. I love to hear today, as Chris and Jen shared, about how the gospel is now getting to a Chinese family who perhaps would never have heard it otherwise. And in God's sovereign plan, he has connected two families so that his gospel can get to them. This is why we send our money and our people to Kenya. This is why we send our money to Dubai. This is why we want the gospel to go all around the world. Because God wants it and we want the things that he wants. Because through that he will get glory. And we and people all over the world of various skin colors and various cultural idiosyncrasies will come to know him and worship him. Because that's why he made the world in the first place. So what do we do with all this? Here's four practical ideas for our worship. First, we should read and meditate on God's promises. If it's true that God's love is unbreakable and we can be strengthened in our rest, you've got to know the word. I think sometimes to avoid legalism, we don't talk enough about reading the Bible because we don't want to set rules on you and make you feel guilty. But sometimes we can get way too sophisticated and run away from simple things. You've got to know God's word. If you're constantly anxious about whether or not God loves you, it's because you don't know his promises. I know if my wife and I do not have time to connect, she calls it QT, quality time. That's her code to me that we're not connected. She needs to hear from me. She needs to know my love for her. And if she doesn't hear that enough, it makes her uneasy. What about in a much more grand sense? How can you know you're settled? How can you know you're safe if you don't know God's promises? So know them, but don't just know them. Meditate on them and rehearse them. Secondly, we should remember and record God's faithful providence in our lives. So what I mean by this is, yes, you can read about it in the Bible, but what about what he's doing for you now? What what has he done Can you point to the times in your life where he has faithfully shown you his providential love? When you feel very unsettled, you you could pull out your diary or your journal and say, I know he's with me because he's done this and this and this, and he's done it for his people for millennia. He will not forsake me. So if you're good at remembering, stick it away in your brain. If you're bad at remembering and you're an incredibly anxious person, write it down. And record it to each other. Thirdly, we should seek to understand clearly God's design for this world. So if it's true that God's love is unbreakable and we can rest in that, these first two practical ideas for worship are important. 
But if it's true that God's sovereign power is real and he's redeeming the nations for himself, these next two practical points are really important to understand as well. The first being that we should understand clearly God's design for this world. That is to say, why did he make it and what's he doing about it? He made the world for his glory, which is why Paul ended his epistle the way he did. And he's rescuing it for his glory. Once again, why Paul ended his epistle the way that he did. Do you know why the world is the way it is? Do you know why it's here? Do you know why you are here? Can you articulate that carefully? Do you think about it? Do you ever get through a week, you come to the end of it, and you realize that you've totally wasted it? You lived it for your own glory, for your own pursuits. You had no thought for God or for his people or for his purposes. And you come to the end of a week like that, and you think to, myself, you think to yourself, how could I be so blind? How, how could I be so narrowly focused on, on my own kingdom? I think we're all like that in one way or another. The only way to get your eyes off of your little narrow path of your existence is to understand the big picture. That's kind of deep, but you've got to spend time understanding why the world is here, why you are here, and why God has put you here to do something about what he is doing. And fourthly and lastly, we should prioritize our resources as we join God on mission. If it's true that God is the most glorious one, that he has set his affections upon us, and that we have the opportunity to take his good news to the world, that is a huge, massive deal. And it means that our resources should be prioritized in such a way that it's in keeping with that big idea. So time, money, children, talents. We probably could go on and on for quite a while. Are you using your time for the big picture that God is rescuing the world for his glory? Are you using your money so that the God of eternity who has given us his grace will be known? Are you discipling your children so they will taste that and make much of him? Are you you using your talents that God has given you for his own sake, for the good of other people? Probably in one way or another, we all feel the sting of that, and that's tough, isn't it? Because we're all failing in one way or another, me included. So we come back to the first point today, that God's love is unbreakable. And we repent, and we confess, and he forgives. And that's what a week's worship is like. That's why we come back together weekly, to be reminded of his love and to be challenged by the gospel.